are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. Today, we have Brian Mayer from Brazil Wire. And please check out B-R-A-S-I-L-W-I-R-E, BrazilWire.com if you want to get the best English language news on Brazil. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for coming. For me, um, I love having you for Lava Jato. Uh, the first interview was kind of crazy because I was like multitasking and I was babysitting my niece and then she vomited all over me. And then I put you on mute and hope that you didn't notice while I was cleaning up the vomit. <laughs> no, I know. I thought I was impressed. I was impressed by the way you were able to do a podcast with a toddler screaming. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for putting and then she vomited all over me, too. And I was like, oh, God. But luckily, uh, my niece is now four or three. I don't know. I'd rather a toddler do that to you than a drunken 40 year old man. <laughs> Has that happened to you before? Almost. OK, good. <laughs> so last time when you came on, we were talking about the State Department does something called a judicial judicial coup. And I know you've mentioned this, but can you just explain the concept of how a judicial coup works? Well, going back a little bit, we know that, uh, first of all, the judiciaries in Latin America, for the most part, are the most elite branches of governments, of national governments. In Brazil, for example, it's the only branch of government that's unelected. Even low-level judges are unelected. They get the position normally by these very difficult, prestigious civil service exams. The Supreme Court justices are appointed, but they're already judges before that. Now, these civil service exams are almost impossible for anyone to pass who doesn't pay for very expensive preparatory classes. So the judiciary in Brazil is probably 95% white, and in its vast majority as most rich elite white people in Brazil are, it's, it's conservative. So it's a conservative branch of government that doesn't have any kind of accountability to the electorate. And in 2008, 2009, there was a Hillary Clinton speech on C-SPAN in which she was talking about Latin America. And she said, in Latin America, having democratic elections isn't enough. We need to help local governments build strong, independent judiciaries. Independent yeah. seems like a code. So what does of she course. mean? Of course, of course. She means friendly to U.S. interests, obviously. Corporations? Talking about, yeah. And when I say U.S. interests, I mean U.S. integral state, as Gramsci would say, meaning the U.S., the U.S. corporate sector, media, academia, all of the institutions that uphold the United States capitalist hegemonic program. You know, so obviously we know if you just look at the donors for the, you know, for the Congress or Senate in the U.S., we know that the corporate sector has a huge amount of control over the United States government. So when you talk about U.S. interests in Latin America, you're normally talking about U.S. corporate access to natural resources like petroleum, lithium in Bolivia, lumber, luxury commodities like coffee and sugar, you know, like unfettered access with a minimum of regulations and bureaucracy and taxes to those resources. And that's why we've had so many coups in the last 120 years sponsored by the United States and Latin America. Harvard Review of Latin America 
article published around 2000 counted between 1894 and 1994, 46 US-sponsored coup d'etats in Latin America, an average of one every 2.4 years or something. And that's not even counting the coup attempts that failed, which we have constantly underway, for example, in Cuba and Venezuela for the last couple of decades. Libya. Libya, yeah. I'm just talking about Latin America, but obviously this applies. No, no, I said Bolivia. Oh, Bolivia. I thought you said Libya. Yeah, no, no. I said Bolivia. Yeah, (laughs) Bolivia. I think the U.S. has sponsored like six or seven coups in Bolivia. You know, Since Morales got in? No, total, but multiple coup attempts. Six or seven successful coups, probably. Ah, okay. Wow, that's a lot. Because it's a mining center. You know, it produced most of the world's silver for the last 400, 500 years. So, but anyway, there's a law called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act that was originally ratified in the United States in 1977 as a response to Watergate. But the original objective of this law was to prevent U.S. companies from engaging in bribery and corruption abroad. And so in 1997, OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, an intergovernmental economic organization that's 37 member countries, passed its Convention on Combating Bribery of Foreign Public Officials in International Business Transactions. And it incorporated the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act into the terms and conditions of the treaty. So every signatory nation of this convention Essentially, by signing, they opened up their sovereignty for U.S. Department of Justice officials and the SEC to persecute whoever they feel is corrupt in those countries. So, for example, the FCPA, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, is what the FBI used as justification in 2015 when they marched into FIFA headquarters in Zurich and arrested a couple of their vice presidents. (laughs) Because Switzerland had signed this convention, right? So, and, and notably, you know, like Evo Morales dropped out of the convention and Venezuela never signed it. And so even though they've tried to go after Bolivian and Venezuelan officials, government officials through Lava Jato, they haven't been able to because they never adhered to FCPA. So Brazil adhered to FCPA in 1997. And... Although it opens up sovereignty to U.S. law enforcement officials and Department of Justice, FBI, et cetera, there's strict terms and conditions of this partnership which have to be adhered to, especially in the case of Brazil. For example, all communication, the the actions have to be done in partnership with local federal police or public prosecutors. And the communications between these local Brazilian public prosecutors and federal police officers, has to go through the Brazilian Office of Foreign Affairs because of Brazilian sovereignty laws. It can't be informal, okay? So I, I know I'm getting deep into the... No, we want that. We're nerds. Okay. But okay, like good. one question, uh, yeah. this actually reminds me of a WikiLeaks part in that... I know exactly the cable you're talking about. Okay, okay sorry. Okay, yeah. go ahead then. I I'll can go. say what it is. It's yes, go ahead. the 2009 <laughs> yes. WikiLeaks cable... Yes. State Department communication, which talks about a training event under the guise of 
the fight against terrorism. Wow. Yes. Communications like we finally got Brazil to use the T word. Oh, uh, exactly. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Wow. You read my okay. mind. <laughs> so in the in this wiki in the State Department cable, it was released mm-hmm. by WikiLeaks. They they talk about this joint training event mm-hmm. about corruption that took place with members of the Brazilian judiciary and federal police mm-hmm. and State Department officials in Rio de Janeiro that took place over the course of like 10 days. Mm-hmm. One of the key speakers in the event was Judge Sergio Moro. And one mm-hmm. of the things they talked about was like, basically they're saying like, we're having a hard time convincing Brazilians to admit or to pretend. I put pretend in parentheses there in brackets, but you know, that there's Middle Eastern terrorist cells operating in <laughs> Because this, this has been the push for a long time. I mean, I saw, that, saw that documentary about Nesbit on Netflix about the Argentinian uh, lawfare attack against Christina Kirshner when they tried to implicate her in the somehow in the bombing of the Jewish community center that was committed by white supremacists in, in Buenos Aires in the 90s. I, I, I just wanted to make sure I sent you the cable just so that we are on the yeah. same. Okay, just making sure. I know the cable almost by heart. Oh, okay. That's so funny. You've really, been writing I'm, about it for so long. Oh, my God. I've never had anyone write my mind about a WikiLeaks cable before. Yeah. No, but so the, the takeaway from that meeting was that, okay, well, we aren't going to get them maybe to talk about corrupt uh, terrorism, but they've agreed with us to start a kind of big, joint, cooperative anti-terrorism investigation and they've agreed that it'll be either be headquartered in Cuiabá or in Curitiba. Curitiba being where Lava Jato started. And the name of the seminar was called like A Bridge to the Future. And then the name of the economic program that was launched immediately after the coup against Dilma Rousseff was called Bridges to the Future. And one week after Dilma was thrown out at a meeting at this U.S. right-wing corporate think tank that generates a lot of news bites on Latin America for New York Times and other publications called ASCOA, which publishes America's Quarterly Magazine. Michelle Tamer publicly in a speech said that the reason Dilma Rousseff was deposed was because she refused to adhere to the conditions of the Bridge to the Future project, which is essentially a laundry list of Washington consensus-style deep austerity structural adjustments, you know, like raising the retirement age, destroying uh, labor rights, flexibilizing the labor force, freezing health and education spending. So this doesn't necessarily prove anything. It's circumstantial evidence, but it looks like it at least influenced Lava Jato. And so with Lava Jato, what we have is an investigation that was started as a joint investigation. The U.S. Department of Justice and the Brazilian Public Prosecutor's Office in the city of Curitiba, which is kind of like a provincial city with a a long right-wing reputation. It was home to the largest Nazi rally ever held outside of Europe during the 1930s. And we mean- And it prides itself on its white heritage, Curitiba. Curitiba, oh, it's it's on the sea, right? Yeah, on the sea, Curitiba. And so it started and What we see that's really interesting is in 2015, 2016, you can find like mainstream media newspaper articles talking about this collaboration between, you know, the U.S. DOJ and the Lava Jato investigation, because in 2016, 
the DOJ and SEC together, they collected a record amount of fines of a foreign company. The Which most one? money that had ever been collected by a single foreign company, $3.5 billion in fines from Petrobras State Petroleum Company that, you know, it was pushing, the U.S. has been pushing to privatize since, since the 1950s. Oh, my. Now it all makes sense. Okay, okay. So Petrobras is partial, at least from what I recall, is at least partially a public resource, right? Yeah. Uh, during the 90s, Bill Clinton's puppet ruler in Brazil, Fernando Henrique Cardoso, partially opened it up to private investors. So 51% of it is government controlled. Uh, okay. One thing I never understood. So between 2000, I believe, 13 and 16, the president of Brazil was Dilma Rousseff. And it made sense that they targeted her and then they had an impeachment and got rid of her. But how did Lula, who was the president between, I believe, 2001 and 2012, get sucked into this investigation? That okay. part. Um, first of all, Lula was president from January 2002 to January 2011 when Dilma mm-hmm. took over until she was thrown out in this parliamentary <laughs> mediatic coup in 2016. So Dilma was in charge for six years. They're both from the same political party. And this party, the Workers' Party, is very committed to not enabling privatizations. Okay, so, and it had an economic project for Brazil that was based on sovereignty, not just economic sovereignty, but geopolitical sovereignty. It maintained Brazil self-sufficient in energy, as it had been since the dictatorship, but now it's losing its self-sufficiency. And it engaged in a very small, Dilma Rousseff did a very small amount of privatization because she realized that there was a coup underway and she was kind of trying to, in her mind, like, say, if I do a little bit, maybe they won't overthrow our government, right? So, like, she opened up 10% of Brazil's massive offshore oil reserves for foreign companies to exploit in partnership with Petrobras. But she also issued an executive order, a decree, allocating 100% of Petrobras profits to the public health and education system. I mean, these kinds of things, like there's the BRICS that both Dilma Rousseff and Lula pushed heavily. And at one point, Lula told me in an interview I did with Michael Brooks that like, at one point, the BRICS was talking about abandoning the dollar for its transactions. And Obama called <laughs> called Lula up immediately, like in a panic, like, what's this you guys are talking and about? Lula? <laughs> and the, I mean, there's all kinds of examples of how the PT governments were trying to reduce dependency on the United States <laughs> and expand relations to the BRICS countries, but also to Iran, to the Middle East, to countries in Africa. Brazil became the largest, for example, the largest poultry exporter to the Middle East during the PT years. And this was all through a project that they had that was really based on, I mean, there were some neoliberal elements of their government that they inherited from previous governments, like high interest rates. And, but basically, the project was based on ECLAC, the Latin American Economic Center of the United Nations based in Chile, from the 1950s under Raul Prebisch and Celson Furtado. So it was basically a what you call developmentalism 
in the developing world. It's called developmentalism. It's a kind of extension of Keynesianism that's based on, it's not like a radical socialist ideology at all. It's kind of like a social democrat attempt to build, strengthen in the industry and build internal markets. So that, and, and also engage in kind of like regional trading blocks with other developing world countries. I mean, one example of, I think, of developmentalism from outside of Latin America would be Jawaharlal Nehru in India, uh-huh. pumping, money, pumping money into science and technology, maintaining high minimum wage. The PT governments raised the minimum wage in dollar terms from $49 to $315. So it's the kind of capitalism really, but it's anti-neoliberal. Well, one statistic I want to explain to people is that right now Americans are alleged talking about how allegedly like the stimulus allegedly cuts child poverty in half. But with Lula da Silva, within an eight year period, all poverty was cut by 75 percent. So it went from 12 percent to 4 percent, the extreme poverty. So that is almost unheard of in this peninsula. And the UN was estimating in 2011 that it was only a matter of time before the Dilma Rousseff administration, through its war on extreme poverty, completely eliminated extreme poverty. They were predicting. In fact, I was working in the NGO sector at this time, and that's not because I have a strong belief in NGOs. I'm very critical of NGOs, but it was better than English teaching. I've lived in Brazil 25 years. And at one point, I was able to get out of English teaching into NGO sector. And I was at one NGO that was, I think, pretty good, which is ActionAid, uh, which the, at one point the international director was a founder of the Cut Union Federation in Minas Gerais. And they helped fund the World Social Forum. And worked with, I worked with the MST through them and things like that. So they're not, you can make a communication criticism of them as well. But it wasn't like... I actually went to Brazil the first time as a guest at the World Social Forum from college. Which one? Uh, 2002 or two, no, 2003. I was at that one too. Oh, in, um, what do you call it? Porto Alegre. Yeah. Okay, we were, a- Lula was there. Okay, so I guess we were kind of together via soul, but I hadn't met you back then. <laughs> so yeah, one thing about World Social Forum that's interesting is that Evo Morales... Lula, Rafael Correa, mm-hmm. Daniel Ortega, mm-hmm. all met there and hung out before they were elected presidents in their respective countries. And um, uh, Nestor Kirchner. Chavez was there as well, but he was already president. Yeah, in Puerto Alegre in 2002, the first one, 2001-2002. By 2003, Lula was already president. So, Yeah. So that it, it had like the World Social Forum had a huge influence on the pink tide governments, you know, because it brought together all of the social <laughs> movements and and unions and things like that of Latin America. So it had a big influence on that. But this is a this is a tangent. And I forgot how I got into this. Yeah, I, I got oh. you. Oh, you were talking about the World NGOs. Social Forum. NGOs. OK, <laughs> let me back up. So in 2011, at the end of 2011, at the beginning of 2012, I got laid off. Action Aid because all of the international funding organizations and most of the international NGOs had all pulled out of Brazil because it was common knowledge that Brazil was about to eliminate extreme poverty. Hmm. And of course, that was undone by the Lava Jato investigation 
You know, there's this misnomer that was spread, this false narrative spread all over the northern media that Brazil had run out of money by spending too much money on social programs during the Dilma Rousseff and Lula governments. But the fact is, when Lula left office, Brazil had $370 billion in foreign reserves, up from $49 billion in foreign reserves when Lula first took office. It had over 1 trillion reais in national reserves, and it had $240 billion of loans pending that it had made to the U.S. government to be paid back with interest. Brazil had transformed into the third biggest lender to the U.S. government. And also it had lent 20 billion, it had gone from being a debtor nation to the IMF to being a lender nation. Oh, wow. Strategy to try and open spaces of counter hegemony from the developing world within the, the IMF. So the IMF owed it 20 billion. This was the status that Brazil was in during 2015, the year before the coup, when Sergio Moro, the Lava Jato judge, who was put as Time Magazine Personality of the Year in 2016, was invited to all these speaking events as COA, America's Quarterly, served as this kind of PR agent in the US, all these fluff pieces in the New York Times about what a hero he was. That year in 2015, he issued judicial orders paralyzing Brazil's five largest engineering and construction companies and partially paralyzing Petrobras, including full paralyzation of its shipbuilding industry. So a recent study that just came out, at the time they said just the, the construction industry paralyzation, there was a study published in BBC Brazil, which I always cite, that caused 500,000 immediate layoffs, direct layoffs, plus over a million indirect. But a new study that's come out by the CUT Union Federation, it's a research institute, Diezi, it says the total number of job losses caused by those moves by the Lava Jato judge, Sergio Moro, working closely with the FBI and USDOJ, caused 4.3 million job losses and 170-something billion dollars of losses in direct investment to Brazil. And at the end of 2015, the study I always cite from BBC says that of the 3.4% drop in GDP in 2015 in Brazil, 2.5% of that was caused by Lava Jato freezing the construction industry. Remembering that Odebrecht Construction Company, the big target of Lava Jato, was a major competitor. And yeah, it could be, it was probably corrupt. Construction is one of the five most corrupt industries in the world, as anyone living in Chicago or Boston could tell you. But it was a direct competitor of two of the most highly corrupt companies in the world, Bechtel and Halliburton. Bechtel you know, like sounds it was, very it was familiar. Headaches for Halliburton in Africa and in Latin America. So it was, they were targeting Odebrecht, you know, not because of some self-righteous. The U.S. DOJ didn't have this self-righteous anger of corruption because you don't see them targeting Halliburton in Iraq. By the way, um. Is it me or I believe the world's largest construction firm, which is a direct competitor, which I believe used to be Patel, has been Laden's as the majority shareholder, but not, not, let's not get conspiratorial. <laughs> as who? Bin Laden's. Oh, well, yeah, you know, that's a, that's a whole other. I know. I'm just like forms. explaining. I mean, if you, look at, you look at the relationship between the Bin Laden family, Halliburton, Dick Cheney, Bush, Iraq war. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff. I, I know. I was just it's like, so it, so, but it just it illustrates how hypocritical it is for the U.S. DOJ to target one of Halliburton's competitors 
you know, and act like it's this big self-righteous war on corruption. Well, I've read a WikiLeaks cable where they suggest that evil Morales pick some idiot, some puppet uh, for head of patrol, whatever in their interior ministry is. Mm-hmm. And then we realize that Evo Morales does not pick them. And then they get really mad. And, and that's because Evo Morales, the, the, what they really got mad at Evo Morales was that he was uncorruptible. Yeah. And by, by corruptible, what, I mean, what's the real root of corruption? It's not Money. governments. It's private sector. Yes. I mean, the, the most corrupt things in the world are these privatizations. When Fernando Henrique Cardoso privatized Brazil's state mining company, which owned all of the mineral rights to Brazil, which is a lot of minerals, right? It's a lot of things. Fernando Henrique Cardoso sold the company for the equivalent of one quarter profits of that year, around $3 billion, right? Yes. The estimated market worth of the company was over $60 billion. That's so that's over 20%. Yeah, and it was his friends. He sold it to right so that's corruption you know shell petroleum company handpicking cabinet ministers in nigeria is corruption but you see these fake anti-corruption ngos like transparency international which has received funding from shell acting as if corruption mm-hmm. is only a governmental issue ah. it has nothing to do with the Oil companies maintaining private mercenary armies to kill indigenous peoples in the Amazon and Ecuador. That's not corruption to them. Corruption would be like Evo Morales refusing to let Chevron handpick a, a cabinet minister. Yes. An example of corruption. And that's the thing. When you look at Lava Jato, then it's not only. So why did they go after Lula? Well, because. For the same reason the U.S. goes after anyone in Latin America who tries to maintain some kind of national control over natural resources and some kind of hegemony. <coughs> That's why. And they, he was, they viewed him as a political threat for returning to power, which he was trying to do. So they tried to, they're like, well, let's start this investigation against him so that we can prevent him from being elected president in 2018. It succeeded. And look what we got now, you know. So, Jesus. Uh, but the leaks that have come out, a very small amount were released homeopathically over the course of over a year, bit by bit, itty bit by bit by The Intercept. Oh, I have a question. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, Okay, so last time you came here, we were talking about the beginning of the leaks. It was about maybe two years ago. And so what I heard was that Sergio Moro, who was somehow both judge and prosecutor, and other roles, yeah, um, basically hatched out a plan to get rid of Lula and ended up like, uh, then Bolsonaro ended up nominating him as Supreme Court justice, right? Exactly. Okay, so now, uh, and, and so since then, what has come out? Well, uh, The Intercept received 57 gigabytes of a total of six terabytes of leaked <laughs> Telegram conversations between the Lava Jato prosecutors, and in some cases, Sergio Moro, the judge who was allowed to oversee the investigation and rule on it with no jury. Wait, wait. In a district that had nothing to do with the case. Wait, 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 hold on. So the judge was talking with the, that is illegal in America. And in Brazil too, he was giving instructions to the prosecutors the entire time on how to 
the definition of rigging is when you a yeah. judge favors one side. <laughs> oh yeah, but that I mean that was just the beginning, and so what happened is after a year, it took the Intercept over a year to start mentioning the United States, and they only started getting into this subject after the COVID pandemic started, and this issue of leaked Telegram messages wasn't like a headline news event anymore. Okay, and so now the hacker, Wagner Delgatti, who's facing 300 consecutive one-year prison sentences right now. In the United States or in Brazil? No, in Brazil, in Brazil. Like, okay. not protected at all by the Intercept. Oh, um, oh my God. Wait, wait. Uh, so yeah. they kind of got a source narked on again? I don't, look, I'm not saying they narked on him, but he's They were careless his, uh, again. They didn't exactly protect him, okay. right? They didn't, it doesn't look like they did anything to protect him. He's complained now that he feels like he feels let down by Glenn Greenwald and The Intercept because, first of all, they refused his offer for more leaks. And second, because they said, oh, no, we're going to get plenty of articles out of what you gave us already. Uh, and secondly, he only re- they only released a, in his, what he says is a small portion of what he gave them. And so the minute that the Supreme Court had the hard drive seized, and admitted the six terabytes as information of leaked conversation as evidence in Lula's defense, and his defense lawyers got a hold of it, all of this new information started coming out that's beneficial to the defense. So the question is, accidentally or deliberately, did the Intercept withhold evidence that would have been beneficial to the defense mm. of a former president, you know, mm during a period when there's been a fascist takeover of the country for whatever reason. We don't know. What we do know is that according to Delgatti, Intercept sat on a lot of information. And we do know that they didn't make it public so that anyone could see it. And, they re- and he says they refused more information. It seems like they were just planning on le- releasing this little by little forever. <laughs> you know? But the minute the defense team got a hold of it, all of a sudden all of these major bombs dropped. Like the day Lula was arrested, Lava Jato chief prosecutor Dalton Dalignol referred to it as a gift from the CIA. Okay. And, you know, that they had been manufacturing plea bargain testimonies. They, they were using plea bargain testimonies that were complete forgeries, oh. including forged signatures. <sighs> and they were joking about it. Dalignol called these plea bargain testimonies outsourced testimonies. And there's just so much, and there's information implicating three Supreme Court justices as collaborating to keep Lula behind bars. There's all kinds of stuff coming out. And I'm not saying that Intercept necessarily had this stuff, but it's a little bit suspicious that within a couple weeks of the defense having access to these documents, the Supreme Court dropped all charges against Lula because I think for damage control, mainly, you know, uh, to protect Moro and Dalignol, and also to protect members of the Supreme Court, because it's so damning. You know, and me- meanwhile, you have Greenwald recently saying that he still suspects. He's been saying this for like five years. He doesn't know if eventually they're going to find some evidence that Lula committed corruption. That's unethical and it's pure speculation and it violates the principle of innocent until proven guilty. And you could say it about anyone. I could say it about Greenwald. 
Well, we don't know yet if he's going to be, if it's going to be proven that Greenwald's committed some kind of corruption. There's no evidence for it, just like there's no evidence that Lula's committed any corruption. But I could say it, right? I'm not a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. So if I say something like this about Glenn, it doesn't carry any weight. <laughs> but it's the same kind of speculation. It's the same logic. And I think it's unethical. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, budding what's now considered the largest judicial scandal in the history of Brazil. It's even the New York Times in an op-ed piece calls it that. So why are you, yeah, budding it? Why are you saying that? Well, yeah, but it almost feels like the one year of homeopathic drip by drop releases that they did of these telegram conversations was a kind of, yeah, but it like, why didn't they just dump it all immediately to the defense team so they could use it to get Lula freed up from these charges in time for him to run for president next year, which is exactly what happened as soon as the defense team got access to the leaked telegram conversations from the Supreme court immediately within two weeks, Lula's got his political rights back. You know, maybe that would have happened a year ago, a year and a half ago, if if intercepted shared. The oh, OK. Um, Can we just switch back to how Bolsonaro got elected? It seems like Lula was in prison and he picked some guy, somebody who was a mayor of the Sao Paulo, Fernando Haddad, who people didn't know. Right. Well, no, Haddad. people know who he is. He's kind of like a bureaucrat. OK, he was Lula's education minister. During a period in which, you know, they they built 17 new completely free public universities and extensions to the campus or camp by of dozens of universities, they they doubled the size of Brazil's public university population and set up a quota system based on mainly on social class instead of race, which guaranteed that 50 percent of all slots in these free public universities were reserved for graduates of public grammar and high schools with a little 5% differentiality for Afro-Brazilians, which works fine because 80% of the working class in Brazil is Afro-Brazilian. So, and so, you know, the quintupled number of Afro-Brazilian university students, it, like, it basically cut a hole in the entire Brazilian class system because the public universities are the most prestigious universities in Brazil. So he had, people knew who he was. And he did pretty well. I mean, what happened, though, basically, the reason he didn't do better was because after Lula was arrested, he insisted on continuing to run for office. And the UN Human Rights Commission backed him up. The UN Human Rights Commission issued a legally binding order to Brazil to let Lula run from behind bars, like Bobby Sands did in the UK and Northern Ireland when he was in jail. And so the Lava Jato investigation, Judge Morrow illegally cut Lula off from speaking to the press while he was in jail. Now, mass murderers, rapists, they can all give press conferences all they want from behind bars in Brazil, right? Lula was, they made an exception to the law to put him behind bars. They had to violate the constitution to do that. But then once he was behind bars, Moro issued another exception to the law preventing him from speaking to the press. Even so, three months after he was behind bars, He was leading in all the polls for the presidency with over double the support of his nearest rival, who was Jair Bolsonaro, and with more support than all other candidates combined. And so in Brazil, you only officially declare 
your candidacy one month before the election. They have a one month election season. It's a really good idea. They should do it in the U.S. It saves a lot of money. Or like we could just like get rid of the elections and have, um, what do you call it? Citibank privately pick. <laughs> yeah, like well, that. That's what's almost what's happening. Right now. <laughs> exactly. But then yeah. how would the media companies make all their money? So. And- <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd be OK with just like canceling elections and just calling it czars. <laughs> yeah, really like Wil- Wilfredo Pareto's theory of elite rule. Because the election season interrupts the economy or something. Um, but anyway, I'm saying that ironically. I don't believe we should have elite rule with Wilfredo Pareto, according to Pareto. But so anyway, once they declared Lula as candidate, they immediately moved to disregard the legally binding in Brazil, because there's a Brazilian law which says orders from the Human Rights Commission of the UN are legally binding. They ignored that ruling and canceled his right to run for office. So the PT had 30 days to submit another candidate, Fernando Haddad, pretty well respected, but not, he, basically my issue with Haddad is he's not working class. You know, like Lula knew how, knows how to talk to everybody. Haddad is a kind of university professor, political scientist, center left. Even so, even so, he made it to the second round against like, eight other candidates. So in Brazil, highest. Yeah. Okay. So in Brazil, they have for the presidency, they have two levels. And if somebody doesn't win outright by at least 50% plus one vote, they are, or is it more than that? No, it's 50% plus one. Okay. 50% plus one vote. Then um, they have the top two candidates go to the second round and they have an election again. And that's how they pick the president. Yeah, and, and that's what happened. So keep it in mind that one week before the election, Sergio Moro again, Lava Jato judge, illegally leaked compromising segments and recordings from a plea bargain testimony, coerced plea bargain testimony, <laughs> implicating Haddad in frivolous corruption allegations, right? One week before the election, this damaged his chances of winning. Right. And so why is that illegal? First of all, it's illegal to leak any kind of information like this to the media during an election month. That's a crime in Brazil. Secondly, the plea bargain testimony had already been thrown out by a Sao Paulo judge for being, you know, not having any evidence of anything in it and essentially being coerced. And so it didn't have any information implicating Haddad of anything. And like a month after the elections, all of the a judge came out again and just specified that there's no charges against Haddad for corruption or anything. And so the major right wing newspapers like Global, all of the major media in Brazil is right wing. You know, it all it was all se- severely built up during the dictatorship. And so Global, Folio de Sao Paulo, they're all treating Haddad as if he were guilty before being able to prove his innocence of corruption a week before the elections. Even so, he still got like 48 million votes and he's, you know, made it to the next round and lost by about 7% to Bolsonaro in the final election after only, only, you know, two months after he announced his candidacy. So it wasn't exactly a failure for the left or a failure for PT or anything like that, considering the circumstances of having its candidate from running. Basically, it was rigged. Totally rigged. Yeah. And oh, and so the leaked telegram conversation show the entire time 
Dalton Dalignol and the Lava Jato prosecutors talking about how they were praying to Jesus that Bolsonaro would win the election, you know? <laughs> and, and so immediately afterwards, Bolsonaro announces Moro, who the U.S. media had presented as a progressive for the previous four years, as his neo-fascist super justice minister. One of the first things Moro did after taking this position was try to pass a new law giving military police officers to, the right to kill anyone if they said they were afraid. They, the person didn't even have to have a weapon. Jesus. As long as they felt afraid. But this was the huge progressive you know, hero, keynote, uh, Notre Dame University graduation speaker, Time Magazine personality of the year, New York Bloomberg. Times hero. This was Sergio Moore. As it turns out, oh, surprise, he's a fascist. Great, you know? Even America's quarterly, as COA, you know, was trying to spin it because they ran PR for him the whole time. They put him on the cover of their magazine at one point, dressed like one of the Ghostbusters, and it said corruption. Oh, oh my God. Uh, okay. Uh, I'm really having to do like relaxation exercises so that I don't pop the lid during your, uh, during, during this interview. That's how I feel. Yeah. Um, so I'm. Here. Okay, go on. I'm, that, that's, <laughs> if you see that I'm breathing in and breathing out, it's not because Darth Vader invaded this channel. It's just that. Um... <laughs> so at this point, as COA, America's Quarterly, their, their editor, Brian Winter, who had gone down and spent a week socializing with the Bolsonaro family, comparing Bolsonaro's children to the Kennedys, and saying, well, you know, some people are going to accuse me of normalizing the Bolsonaros, but we have to take into consideration they're going to be an important factor in politics for decades to come. They're like the Kennedys. His children, they're all fucking geniuses. You guys have the version of the CIA early, are we? Oswald? Do we have it down here? Yeah. Version of the CIA. We have something called Abin. Ah, okay. Uh, I was just saying. Which cause... is under the control right now, along with 16 other ah. government agencies of the architect of the Sid Soleil massacre in Haiti. My General God. Bain, who's an enemy, has been an enemy of Lula's ever since Lula pulled him out of Haiti seven days after the massacre. You know, oh my God. I'm just bringing that up because there's this full spectrum war, media war against Lula right now where he's being attacked from the left and the right and from all sides. And there's a tiny faction of people on, of Aristide fans on Twitter who are attacking Lula over Minostar right now. So I just brought up, it's important to recognize that Lula did not order the Sitsule massacre. He removed the architect of that massacre seven days afterwards and that guy's been a sworn enemy ever since and now he's the most powerful figure in bolsonaro's government wow so it seems like the entire that. state apparatus is fighting lula basically yeah although now bolsonaro has gotten so bad i think i compare bolsonaro his position to like hitler's position in the 30s. <laughs> Because, and, and both of them, you know, came to power on this rampant anti-communist hysteria mm -hmm. and attacks against union leaders and things like that, you know, uh, and gays. So the German, and I'm sure you know more about this than me because you're an expert on this kind of stuff. The German bourgeois thought like, well, let's help Hitler take power because, well, he's a clown, but he's a lot better than having a socialist take power. Yep. Or even a, yeah. So, in, in France, the bourgeois actually had a saying that says "Plutôt Hitler, Popular Front," which means better Hitler than the Popular Front. Yeah. 
And that's exactly, so it was better Bolsonaro than PT. Mm -hmm. Ironically, because PT is not, you know, there's a socialist internal caucus within PT called Socialism or Barbary, which is about a third of the party, but officially it's not a socialist party. It's like to the, a little bit to the left of Bernie Sanders. So Popular Front is basically every non-fascist part, person. Every non-fascist United. party, right, yeah. So I think like the German bourgeoisie, the Brazilian bourgeoisie thought, well, we'll get Bolsonaro in because he's much better than the PT. And then if he starts causing problems, we'll just remove him. And like, guess what? They can't rem they're having problems removing him because they didn't take into consideration, like Hitler, that there's this core group of fanatical fascist followers of Bolsonaro that's probably 25% of the Brazilian population. And that he has all of the police on his side, mm -hmm. you know, and a large part of the military. So now the bourgeois is like kind of like backpedaling and supporting Lula again, which is ironic, you know, and it just shows how ridiculous politics is in the first place, you know, because like Lula is such a clever politician. He's not saying, no, oh, no, you guys can't support me now. So like the... One of the key architects of the coup against Dilma Rousseff is supporting him now, former congressional president Rodrigo Maia. And it was like, look, I remember all of the things you did to damage democracy in Brazil, you know, to take away workers' rights, this and that. However, if now you've decided to turn over a new leaf and support, you know, me, I'd be willing to talk to you. No, 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 no. That, that, no. People in Brazil... You need to do what, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to say this. Like, you guys are going to have get, have to do the crackdown because Lula is too nice. You just can't well, let him. He's not, I don't think he's being nice. I think he's just, and this doesn't mean he really wants to talk to them. I know, but he won't, you he's know that. He's probably he, he, he doesn't have that, uh, like, it's like how Hugo Chavez kind of was a Catholic. So he took the worst part, which is like, oh, we need to forgive everyone. And yeah. that did mass amnesty as opposed to. Well, the, the thing about, you know, a lot of people who criticize the PT and Lula from this, you know, fake bourgeois Brooklyn left position of like, you know, I make $75,000 a year and I'm a leftist. I'm, a co I'm more left than former steel worker <laughs> organizer who lifted 26 million people out of poverty and actually managed to take power mm -hmm. somewhere. Those people, you know, what a lot of them don't understand is that As you mentioned, like after the dictatorship ended, there was full amnesty, not just for the military, but for the two official political parties that were allowed by the military. And they managed to continue controlling, like none of those congressmen and senators were lost their position in the Congress or the Senate. They just held on to power. So they managed to control the House and Senate until well into the Lula years. So what Lula did was he... The most that PT, it's not like the U.S. where like, oh, look, the Democrats have 50 plus one votes in the Senate. They have a majority in Congress. The most, there's like 20 parties in Brazil. The most percentage of Congress that Lula ever had control over was 22%. And he never had control over the military. Like he thought that he could keep the military happy by increasing salaries and worker benefits oh, for me. No, 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 no. Purge, purge. Sorry. I'm going to get very animated because I think people on the left are like, uh, the worst thing yeah, people on the left can power, do is like show mercy. The power to purge. Yeah. He didn't have the power to like purge I know. the military. That's why the people need because to Because he do didn't it. have his own military. I mean, this He's is the difference between Hugo Chavez and Lula. Like Hugo Chavez 
first of all, the military trusted him as one of their own. Because he was a commander. Because he was, yeah. And he knew how to talk to military. And he invested a lot of time and energy in political formation of the military and purging conservatives out of it, you know, which he was able to do because he was a military guy himself. Lula wasn't ever a military guy. The military hated him. And he wasn't able to do anything like that. The most he could do was like uh, help redefine the role of the Brazilian military because in the past, in typical fascist style, it had focused its energy on internal enemies. Yes. And so he kind of reformulated the military to focus on external enemies, maintaining sovereignty. Oh. And he increased the budget, he, you know, he increased salaries and things like that. And it looked like they were happy with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then they just completely turned on him. As it as it turns out, the Purge. the coup against Dilma Rousseff was orchestrated by a bunch of top military generals. It's just come out in the autobiography of General Vilas Boas, who's the man who threatened the Supreme Court on the eve of their vote on whether Lula should go to jail or not, on whether they should open an exception to the Constitution and let Jula, Lula go to jail before his appeals were played out. You know, like he threatened them. In his new autobiography, he just, he admits, yeah, I did threaten them. <laughs> and he admits that he was involved in coup plotting meetings okay. with other generals and things like that. Sorry uh, if I'm... No, 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 it's good. I'm like, I, you've gotten me so worked up. I'm just like imagining mass purges of... <laughs> and this is why... I mean, like, you know how, when, um, I'm sorry, this is a tangent, but you know how people are like, oh my God, he's authoritarian and he like engaged in the mass perjury of all his generals and that makes him bad. Well, look what happens to people like Allende, Lula, Morales, who yeah. don't do, do it. So you, they like, it's like, do you want, uh, so I just want Westerners to stop judging and start understanding. Want more great guests who help you to understand and not judge? Subscribe to our Substack at historically.substack.com. There you can catch our other episodes of the podcast, subscribe to our newsletter, and find out how to catch our live streams on Twitch and YouTube. That's historically.substack.com. Also, do you need the perfect follow-up to Catterday? Learn more about feline friend and revolutionary Vladimir Ilyich Yulinov on Twitch by tuning into our Sundays with Lenin on twitch.tv forward slash historically i was watching the battle of algiers mm-hmm. recently which i man what a great movie i'd never seen it before but it's just like the way one, that yeah. they purged their community of the collaborators with the french before they kicked off the revolution like they killed pimps and drug dealers and things like that yeah it looks authoritarian or whatever but you know what the French ended up killing like one million Algerians. So it's really in the common good to purge your movement of collaborators. And in terms of why it's so hard in some countries to do something like that, I'm not saying necessarily kill, but you know, like I don't care. Kill or exile or something. But exile means they can come back and form a coup. I, that's yeah. a, I, I'm just saying, like, shoot them off. So, to but the like moon. exile, like they exiled Napoleon to some little island somewhere with no internet connection. Moon. <laughs> moon. <Yeah. laughs> so, in the case of Brazil, though, you know what? Like, there's a very big middle class in Brazil that's conservative. And so, if you're talking about, it's not like Cuba where you had. Maybe 15% of the island was 
bourgeois middle class. And they just are like, if you don't want to get with the program, go to Miami. In Brazil, you know, you had like 80 million people in the middle class. And you can't just say to 80 million people, move to Miami. You know, so it's a little bit harder. And I think maybe Chavez ran into a little bit of that problem in Venezuela as well, because like Brazil, Venezuela was upper middle income country. People sometimes in the U.S. don't understand the difference between these countries where it's all just like rich or poor, oh. where a poor person's revolution can take over and just purge the country of the rich. Yes, because it's like a complete <clears throat> third world country, more like in India as opposed to like a India in the 80s as opposed to like a nominal third world country. Like, yeah. I don't know. It's hard to make. Libya. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly, like Libya or something. Like, like there are the, Libya, there are two Libya. kinds of third world countries, and I don't know how to explain it, right? Well, there's even more. You know, okay. Even more. Because you look at a place like Libya, I think like Algeria, it probably had a pretty low stratification between the rich and the poor. Mm-hmm. You know, at least during the Qaddafi years. Exactly. And so, in, and in in a country like, for example, Honduras. Yeah. You would have like. Five percent of the population controlling sixty percent of the wealth, or something like that. Exactly. And most of the population is really poor, but in Brazil you had a very large poor population, over a hundred million. But you also had this kind of like middle and upper middle class population, eighty eighty five million. During the Lula years, the middle class became a majority population during Lula, which opened up another can of worms, you know, because then. <laughs> They joined, a lot of people joined the middle class and just started and turned into assholes. <laughs> yeah, being a victim of your own success. Yeah. That's the worst phase for socialism. Yeah, I think so. I call it the USSR phase. I guess. I don't know enough about. You know, no, I mean, like, usually when the first fall happens, when, like, uh, it becomes, like, the most dangerous part is when there's a lot of people who get out of poverty and join the middle class. So it, but then they don't get rid of the ideology. Yeah, that like if you don't have strong political education programs in place, the, the people who enter the middle class are just going to act like middle class assholes. Exactly, exactly, and and that's where they're. That's what I call like China. Figured, like did it. Like there is yeah. a phase where it's the most dangerous, and yeah. China passed that phase, but Brazil USSR didn't. couldn't. And USSR Brazil did not. Yes, yeah. Brazil really failed early on in that, like within like a year or two. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it, I mean, like a lot of, but you really have to look at the economic terrorism committed against PT governments and the coordinated media work to perform character assassination. And we know now through Lava Jato, through these leaked telegram messages post-intercept period, but they weren't just planning on destroying, completely annihilating, destroying the career of Lula and Dilma Rousseff. They went after every major party leader. So like we have this PT party president, Glazy Hoffman. She's wonderful. She was a Catholic liberation theology youth activist who was part of the student movement. She's a lawyer and she's featured heavily in this wonderful documentary called The Process, which I like better than Edge of Democracy, although Edge of Democracy is great too. She's brilliant. She's very committed leftist. She's far left than Haddad. She went to Maduro's recent inauguration. She's been saying things like, if the PT doesn't turn left now, we're going to die. She's wonderful. They've, Lava Jato created five completely fake corruption charges against her 
And they invited all the TV to raid her home and bring her husband in for questioning a few years ago on these fake corruption charges. And when they got to the Supreme Court, they were unanimously thrown out by the Supreme Court, 11 to 0, because there was like, even though many of the Supreme Court ministers hate the PT and are ideologically compromised, there's really like no evidence whatsoever, not one little piece of evidence that she was involved in anything. But her public image was damaged so much from this process that no one's talking about her as a presidential candidate, who I think she would be the best president right now. Because they, they went after everyone they could in the PT party. They pulled out Guido Mantega was Lula's developmentalist economics minister who oversaw all of these incredible income redistribution programs. And they really had it in for him because he wasn't a neoliberal, right? They invite Sergio Moro ordered the federal police to pull him out of his wife's chemotherapy session and invited all of the TV networks there to film it. And so he was called into the police from a chemo session of his wife's. And, you know, once again, recently, all charges dropped against him because no evidence of corruption at all. But all of this stuff made it into the U.S. news. It made it into U.S. academia. You have people like Perry Anderson writing in the London Review of Books about how corruption had bogged down the PT party. The PT has been destroyed by corruption. And like none of the people he was talking about actually had committed any corruption or were ever convicted of anything. They all had their charges dropped. It was a lawfare attack. Not saying that there's no corruption in Brazil. Of course there is. It's a capitalist country. It's not as corrupt as the United States. Brazil's never invaded another country on a mountain of lies like it did Iraq just so that it could enrich corporations like Raytheon and Halliburton. Well, I mean, Brazil hasn't isn't dropping, has probably has had zero, I hope, drone strikes in the last year. Zero, yeah. Um, Exactly. So like if you talk about corruption, you want to talk about corruption. Look at the Iraq war. That's corruption. That's the biggest example of corruption in the last 50 years. Now, you're talking about Brazil, a country where mayors, unlike Chicago, where I grew up, where there's no bid contracting and no term limits for the mayor. Right. So when I was last time I was living in Chicago, Mayor Daly gave the asphalt maintenance contract to his brother's road surfacing company. Like, you can't do that in Brazil. You have to have licitations and bidding and nepotism is illegal and you have term limits for mayors. So this idea that was perpetrated in the U.S. media and even by people like Glenn Greenwald and things, you know, for years, that Brazil was the most corrupt country in the world, that Brazil is completely bogged down by corruption. It's factually inaccurate. It's incorrect. You know, it's not any more corrupt than any other capitalist country. Of course, there's corruption because there's capitalism, there's private sector constantly working to corrupt public officials. You know, it exists, but it's not like this factor that was dragging the country down so much. In fact, it was doing really well during the PT years when this supposed corruption was taking place that now it's turned out. Yeah, uh, the the Brazilian industries that were part of the five most corrupt industries in the world, which are like arms, petroleum, construction, pharmaceutical, you know, all of those industries are corrupt. So of course, if you look at a petroleum company anywhere in the world, you're going to find some corruption, obviously. But it wasn't to the point that it was like 
dragging down the economy or anything. You know, and now the idea that like a large part of the state petroleum company, which profits had been allocated, earmarked for health and education, that would have really been a big help during this COVID crisis to have more health funding, that those profits are now going to a company like Shell or Chevron hardly represents any kind of victory in this battle against corruption. It seems like corruption is not really corruption in the neutral sense, but it's ideologically, you know what I mean? Like people who think that anything comes from the government is bad. And so they'll like make up any excuse. Yeah, it's ridiculous because in, at least there's accountability, even if the government's a shitty government, at least there's the accountability mechanism of an election. And you can't elect corporation directors, corporate directors. I mean, you can buy stock, but that's not a free election because the richest person has the most stock shares. So it's like the rich have more voice in the corporate sector. Whereas in, the, in theory, in a democracy, everyone has one vote. So it automatically, government is automatically less corrupt than corporate sector. That's actually a very good reason. It's like how you build your building, I guess, or what materials. So it seems like a lot of Americans, I just don't understand how to like um, figure out regime change propaganda when it's like just like obvious, like to see what's being prioritized and who's privatizing it. You know what I mean? Like, do you have any advice for them? Well, I was really... <laughs> This is a stu- very stupid analogy, but I was watching that, that new miniseries about the Mormon counterfeiter in the 80s, and they were talking about how so many people got suckered by this guy. He was a guy who was like creating fake documents that were changing Mormon church doctrine, which is actually pretty hilarious. It was like an epic trolling exercise. The guy basically changed the Mormon creation myth. It was no longer an angel talking to Joseph Smith. It was a white salamander with this fake letter he produced. I mean, it's a long story, but what they were, and it has nothing to do with this podcast, but one thing they were saying was that like, all these people, all these like nerdy book, antique book dealers and stuff got conned by this guy. And they said it was kind of like their own greed combined with, you know, only hearing what they want to hear. And I think what happens with this regime change propaganda is that the U.S. is such a horrible country. It's involved in so many human rights abuses. It's killing so many people around the world. It's destroyed the world's environment. It's still destroying the environment. It's probably going to result in one of the main reasons for total destruction of all life on Earth if something drastic isn't done by China or something soon. It's so bad that a lot of liberals or even people who consider themselves progressive inside the U.S. and in U.S. politics, they kind of only hear what they want to hear when it comes to these other countries. Because if you stop to think that your tax money, for example, is going to kill children in Syria, you know, or it's resulted in 10 million people dropping below the poverty line in Brazil and thousands of deaths down here or, you know, anywhere, your participation as a U.S. citizen has contributed in some way to Honduras becoming the world capital of feminist side. Like people don't really want to hear that. They just want to hear like, well, I don't know what's going on in Myanmar at all right now, but like, oh, well, we, you know, we have to step in and save the people of Myanmar because we're essentially good people. We have to, we have to help save Brazilians from corruption. 
or or Lu, Dilma was thrown out. Brazil's first democratically elected woman president was thrown out in the sexist, you know, bombardment of machismo and false allegations. But let's just think, well, it, she must have been corrupt. She must have done something. You know, John Oliver made some jokes about her. So she's probably corrupt. It's better to think like that. And I even see this in academia. I see a bunch of U.S. Brazil specialist academics who refuse to admit U.S. involvement in Lava Jato still. You know, like it's too disgusting. And it, it's disgusting to a lot of people's worldview because it was Obama administration that started it too. You know, so like so many people hate Donald Trump. They don't want to think about, I, I'm sure you see this all the time. I mean, I lived out, I've been down here in Brazil for 25 years. So I'm just talking about talking to people I know from the U.S. on Facebook and stuff like that. People kind of like build this wall of denial. Yes. Because they hate Trump so much that they like, I had a really good friend from college who used to be really, used to go to protests with me in college and stuff saying like, I'm sorry, I just, I'm, I'm blind on Obama. I can't admit he's ever done anything bad <laughs> because, because he's like a death penalty activist now, my buddy, you know, and it's like, I guess Obama did some things against the death penalty. He didn't stop the death penalty. Well, I mean, uh, uh, people uh, uh, in other countries. I mean, what about the little, I'm sorry. Oh God, I yeah. can't, I, I get too worked it's up when you mention the O word. Yeah, I know. No, I mean, it's like. O word is Obama. Like, I just, I get so worked up. I can't stop control myself. You know what they called him in, when I was in Nigeria, some Nigerian friends said Obama stands for originally, no. originally born in Africa to manage Americans. Oh my God. That's a good one. Okay. Yes. Uh, but, but, okay. But, 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 but yeah, I don't know why, but he triggers me unbelievably um, in every possible way. I just, I can't like, I'm going to pop a blood vessel after I hear his name enough times. You know what I mean? I hear you. Like I, I, my, I, I can't, I, I'm at this phase where I'm not at the Zen phase. I'm still at the, oh God, I'm so angry phase. So I need to, I need to grow past that, but I'm still getting. I know, Cause he's gone, right? Cause yeah. he's gone. It's like these Aristides supporters going on and on about Minosta and Brazil's Lula's role in Minosta and all of that. It's like, that's a long time ago. Someone from Aristides' coalition took power during Minosta occupation, despite all of the atrocities. Minosta did a lot worse things than the Sitsole massacre. Like it brought back cholera that killed 20,000 people. And even so, we're still talking about things 10 years ago. And right now in Haiti, it's like one of the worst moments in Haitian history. I just talked to a friend of mine down there who said it's even more dangerous now than it was during the worst moments of the Minista occupation, which he was against, you know. So at some point, you got to let go of Obama because, uh, and I know a lot of people have a hard time with it, but it's like things have moved on. It's not like I know people who are still almost like hysterical about Hillary Clinton. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, it's there's some kind of like, and and I, it it's like the, the elections right. are always rigged. That's how they, that's how it's like so backwards. Like, you, obviously, like, like Hillary Clinton is like in her 70s now. And, mm -hmm. you know, she's not, if she were that powerful as some people say she is, mm -hmm. she would have been elected president. Yeah. She, she, she's a bad, I'm not, don't she, get me wrong. She's a horrible person. 
But I don't think you should focus all of your energy <laughs> exactly against her as a person. It's a like, structure. I see, like I accept her. Uh, for me, it's so weird. I, I accept her evilness. Like I'm pleasantly surprised if she's not like killing a hundred African rabies a day. So she doesn't work me up as much as I wonder. Like, so there's maybe a stage of acceptance that you go into with like somebody like Hillary Clinton. You're like where you have that process. Oh, I mean, it, it helps that she hasn't been a factor in politics for five years now, really. You yeah, know, that helps. <laughs> but, but with Biden, we kind of have him as like the hangover from Obama. Yes. And we don't even know who's the man behind the curtain because it's not Biden. Like, can't even forgot the building, the Pentagon and forgot the position. And, and he's like that guy from this building. Well, I think Americans and American leftists have a problem of individualizing everything and yeah. In an, in, that's not really a left principle. You have to look at collectives and yeah. structures and things like that. And it doesn't matter if it's Biden or if it was, even if it was Sanders who were elected, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter that much because they're not, the president doesn't have that much control over what the U.S. does. It's rival factions of elites. It's ongoing arguments between the different intelligence agencies, different corporate lobbying groups fighting for attention with each other and things like that. It's a complex structure of capitalism. And not all of the actors are national. You know, A lot of them are multinational, international. So it, it's like I think people focus all their energy on Hillary Clinton or Obama or Trump or something like that. And then when they leave power, everyone just breathes this sigh of relief for a year. And during that year, everyone's getting <laughs> Biden is screwing everybody right now. Biden. And I fell into the same trap. The, the government is screwing everybody right now. I'm certain of it. You know, like how, how the hell did they in, increase funding for police after all of this? How did the Democratic Party just increase funding? Print money. Yeah. So, but this is in Brazil. I'm going off on a tangent. No, no. It's a, I, I, for me, I feel like the worst thing is that everyone feels like really sad and mourns Salvador Allende, but they then get upset at Fidel Castro for being authoritarian without realizing what the difference was between Allende and you could either be like a dead hero or a live villain. You know what it's I mean? Because the American left has a fetish about always losing. It has an issue with taking power. The only way American leftists can maintain pure, which is more important to them than anything else, is by never taking power. <laughs> you know, so they love Allende because he was murdered. He's a martyr. They love Che Guevara, but they hate Castro. You know, they, they hate the government of Vietnam, whatever, because they took power. And when you take power, there's all kinds of contradictions as you can see with what happened with Soviet Union and things like that. There's all kinds of contradictions. It's part of the process. And all kinds of compromises always have to be made. So I think that's part of the problem. It's like it's easy to support Allende because he's a martyr. If Allende had stayed in power... He would have been an authoritarian dictator who suppresses his own human rights with incubator babies or whatever. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what I people don't understand is that the challenge is not 30 years later when everything gets declassified and you find out, oh, yes, the CIA was lying. It's about yeah, like how to book about um, Indonesia. Now. Jakarta method. You, you know, it's, yeah, it's like stopping the next in Jakarta. Now, like 50 years later. Great. 
Yes. You know, it's easy to uh, point your finger. What about, <laughs> I mean, there was a U.S. coup-backed coup going on while he was living in Brazil that he didn't talk about. And then he publishes a book about U.S. involvement 50 years earlier, somewhere on the other Vincent, side. Vincent, oh, yes, the, the Jakarta. Yes, yes, yes. You are absolutely right, because because then they don't have to deal with the demonization. They don't have to get like death threats from Navalny because they don't have to worry people about think that like their career. No, no, yeah, like like last week, for example, I like I'm not. Uh, I did absolutely nothing to get Navalny delisted from Amnesty. It's just that some idiot thinks that I work at Gray Zone and decided like. Okay, so I'm going to... Well, because all of those angry women with vaguely Middle Eastern or Southeast Asian physical appearance are the same person to them. Oh, that's what's... Oh, okay, now it makes sense. And then they put me on it the head... It must be Anya, right? Or Rania. Uh, what, Rania, oh, whatever. Rania that... Kalik or whoever. Yeah, okay, okay, that makes perfect sense. And I'm like, why are you guys smearing me for this? I didn't even do this. <laughs> 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 like, pick something I did. I was accused by... Brian Winter, the editor of America's Quarterly, which is as COA's, you know, corporate lobbying group publication, of persecuting him for years through a series of Twitter shadow accounts. <laughs> he said that about me on Twitter once, three years before I'd even ever opened my first Twitter account. <laughs> like, I, I only came on Twitter because Camila Escalante from Telesur told me it was a job requirement. You know, Telesur. So I have this Telesur Twitter. I never was on Twitter before. So people like to confuse. Confuse. I don't know who, you know, I don't know who was persecuting Brian Winter on Twitter, but, you know, <laughs> but it's crazy how this works, right? It's yeah. Uh, okay. This makes perfect sense. So I'm just saying, like, maybe I'm like speaking to only lefty media people, but if you're not a villain, you're probably not a hero. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I agree. And it's so what I see is that for me, it, I all I think for anyone, it takes about 15 minutes to just sit down and read carefully and then just imagine yourself there. Like if you take that extra 15 minutes, you can stop the Jakarta method from happening. And no one wants to just take that extra 15 minutes, just breathe in, breathe out. You don't have to report the first thing that CNN's reporting. You can wait for a week or a year and you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that it's just that, I don't know, I think that there's structural limitations to what can be done in the media big time, you know, and I think people are just terrified that they'll damage their careers if they ever go out on a limb. And so they just report what local right-wing news organizations in the country where they're reporting on are saying. And it's only safe to criticize the U.S. if you go back like at least 40 years. Exactly. <laughs> but you need to do it to call yourself a leftist. And it's important for your career to be thought of as a leftist because that's how you make your money by normalizing right-wing U.S.-backed regime, regime changes around the world from a kind of progressive standpoint. Yes. For me, it's like the script has not changed. It's an obvious script. We know it. It's a They even wrote a book called, I don't know, like, how to how to color revolute or whatever no, no gene sharp is his name and i forgot the name of the book but they wrote a book that you can buy oh, i know that 
I remember that book. It's yeah. called How to Do Like Cool or How to Like from Cool University. Yeah. And so it doesn't change. You have that script. All you need to do is match the script to the current line in your book. The script you hear on TV, just to match it. And that's it. You know, like I'm getting frustrated of how to let people know to do that. Yeah. And I mean, it's just so, some of it's so obvious. Like, you know, the whole, I'm sure you've read the, what is it called? The CIA, the cultural cold war. Oh, that, that bullshit. Yes. About how the CIA created this. I have it here on, it's by Francis Stoner Saunders, the cultural cold war, the CIA. I'm reading it upside down on my bookshelf. The CIA in the world of arts and letters. And so we know that the CIA created this category, non-Marxist left, during the 1950s, which is essentially liberal at the time. You know, Kennedy, these types of people. It was a category that was created by the CIA, and they pumped all of this money into media and alternative magazines and things like that, that argued from a leftist perspective, but always against Marxism. And I think after Occupy, that became impossible. And so now what we have is this kind of like DSA, anti-anti-imperialist left. And like Trotskyist, this kind of left that like uses, it's not afraid to use the word socialism or use Marx or things like that, but it supports U.S. State Department regime change. Yeah, it's all the time. Like it calls Evo Morales the middle manager of capitalism, like exactly and it's infuriating and like there are only like a few that ends up being like foreign policy is i don't know how to explain it but there's a pervert like in a certain phases of your career like speaking out is the least risky thing to do and in other phases it can be the most risky but the bolder you are it it's easier to marginalize them. So it's like so interesting how it works. I know. That's insane. It's anyway, a paradox. Sorry. But, it's a paradox. And, okay. uh, Thank you. And a lot of people get sucked into it, you know, that maybe don't even mean wrong, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Exactly. We'll put a link to Brian's website so that you can check it out. Please go visit his website every single day. And I would say, do not trust the Guardian or New York Times or whatever else. Like, we need more things like Brazil Wire. <laughs> Thanks. And I actually just wrote an article for Fair about New York Times coverage of Lava Jato. Okay, well, we'll put that here in the description uh, box below. Speaking and of what you're saying about not trusting New York Times. Oh, yeah. Just don't trust percent. anything. But <laughs> yes. thank you so much, Brian. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Thanks, Aisha. And I'll be talking to you again in cyberspace shortly, I'm sure. Yes. Talk to you soon. Take it easy. Bye. Music for this show is done by Rectex. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. Show edited by Rob Granis. And thank you for listening to our show. 